42 miles from London, off the northern coast of Kent, is an island, the Isle of Sheppey. It's home to a holiday camp, a caravan park. There are several schools and a central town with a population of about 20,000 people. Life here is quiet. Most residents work on the mainland, traveling across the Thames estuary by road or on the train, on one of the two bridges. It is, you might say, a pretty unremarkable location. And yet, the Isle of Sheppey is a place that Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt knows all too well. I wouldn't say it was my home, but yes, I stayed in Sheppey for a short while. Not as long as you might have liked. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Con Juan. Episode 4, A Man on the Run. I started this series by saying I wanted to find out everything I could about Juan Carlos. He fascinates me because he's unlike any other criminal that I've heard about. So far, I've told you the story of his crimes, his frankly bizarre arrival into Miami, secreted inside an aeroplane, the robberies in London, Las Vegas and beyond. But there's lots more twists in the Juan Carlos story. In the last episode, we left Juan as he was arrested in the UK, in Sainsbury's supermarket of all places. He went to prison. A judge sentenced him to spend three and a half years behind bars. Long enough to contemplate his actions, to learn from his mistakes, to rehabilitate, and also to plot his escape. The prison system in the UK, much like in other parts of the world, gives inmates a ranking. The most dangerous ones, those who have committed murders or terrorists, they're Category A, and they'll be housed in some of the more secure Category A prisons. At the other end of the scale, elderly prisoners, those preparing for release, or those who aren't considered to be a risk to the public, well, they'll be in Category D. And if there's space, they'll go to what's called an open prison. Here, Inmates are free to leave at certain times of the day, to go to approved work or to medical appointments. Conditions are more relaxed, there are more privileges. There is a curfew, but with no desire to go back to harsher conditions, most inmates stick to it like clockwork. Just weeks into his sentence in the UK, Juan Carlos was sent to one such open prison, Stanford Hill, on the Isle of Sheppey. It is typical English, very green, and there are many farms. This is a small village, which is where we went on weekends to drink beer. We could go and do that, and we would never watch. We look more like domestic workers than prisoners. I know what you're thinking. It doesn't seem like much of a punishment, and I'm inclined to agree. But the courts and the prison system had decided that Juan Carlos wasn't a danger. He'd never hurt anybody, so an open prison was the right place to serve his punishment. Over in the US, Las Vegas cop Kirk Sullivan didn't mind what kind of prison Juan was staying in, just so long as he could get his hands on him once he came out. When they, the UK was done with him, when he had served his time there, then we'd fly over and pick him up and bring him back to Nevada and try him there and he'd be incarcerated 
in the, in the United States for a while for his crime. That's how it should have happened. That's not what happened. I remember it very distinctly. I was walking along Oxford Street on my way to the police station. Oxford Street's a big, big, huge shopping street in central London. This is Christian Plowman, the UK cop who had just made sure Juan was locked up. He hadn't planned on hearing about him for a while. And I remember seeing the newspaper headlines outside the metro station uh, in Bond Street saying, world's top con man escapes from prison. I knew it was Juan Carlos as soon as I'd seen the headline. Sure enough, Juan Carlos had taken the first opportunity to reclaim his freedom. I remember they told me, you have an appointment with a dentist. And so on that day, I went to the dentist. I took the train, I went to the appointment, the dentist saw me and everything was normal. But I had to wait, wait and wait. Then, when I was going to return, it was already after 4pm, which was the curfew time to return. I already knew that if I wasn't back by that time, they would have a report that I had escaped. No excuses or anything. So then I decided to leave anyway. I got this email from Detective Plowman, 6-14-2005. Kirk, you are not going to believe this. Betancourt escaped from prison on the 6th of June. I am waiting further info as we speak and we'll update you soon. Regards, Christian. Well, you're immediately let down. You know, you've got that much time and energy invested in it. You're, you're going to be let down. That's just a natural emotional reaction. Just let him go to the, the dentist. He doesn't need to be escorted. Look what a nice guy he is. He promised he'd come back. As there's the perception that we're all cowboys over here and shoot you at the drop of the hat, there's also the perception that they're soft on crime in the UK. And so for me, you know, this was new territory. Like I said, I just thought, there you go. You know, they let him go to the dentist unescorted. They are soft on crime. I told you the cops were stupid. Maybe Kirk has a point. But soft on crime or tricked by a cunning individual, the only concern now was finding out where Juan had gone. Hotels around London were put on high alert. An international thief with a penchant for Mayfair and Belgravia was on the loose. If he was going to go anywhere, everyone believed it was back to London, back to those posh hotels, literally, to his favourite scenes of crime. I needed to get away. I needed to get off the island. But I didn't have any way to travel. With five pounds in his pocket, Juan Carlos was now an active fugitive. He was wearing street clothes, another perk of the open prison. But he didn't have a bank card or any ID other than his prison card. On an island 42 miles from London, Juan Carlos may have been a free man, but his opportunities appeared to be limited. He left that prison with literally with nothing. Christian had worked hard to put Juan in that prison. Now he was learning that Juan had escaped, but he figured that he was hardly equipped for a long time on the run. He might have had a few quid to pay for public transport. I think he had sunglasses and a watch as well and a toothbrush. But that was it. For the first time that I'm aware of, Juan Carlos was stuck. He needed money to get off the Isle of Sheppey, and he needed a passport to get out of the country. And as things stood, he had neither. So what do you think I'm going to do? I met an Italian, he looked a bit like me, and I took his passport. Juan claims he stole a passport from an unsuspecting new acquaintance. 
and he used that passport to fly to Ireland. He rented a room in a cheap part of Dublin, where backpackers would stay, on the promise of payment, of course. It was close to the bus station, but it was also just a stone's throw from Dublin's finest hotel, the Merrion. It seems that in a very short space of time, like a matter of a week, he's transformed himself from this this dude with nothing, literally, uh, on a remote, you know, remote location in the middle of nowhere in in Kent. Suddenly emerges in a luxury hotel, dressed in completely different clothing and looking like a legitimate punter for a luxury hotel in Dublin. As Christian and Kirk were exchanging frantic transatlantic phone calls, Juan Carlos was sipping on a vintage Bollinger and tucking into lobster in the fine a la carte restaurant of the hotel. A bit of a step up from prison fare. But how had Juan Carlos reinvented himself so quickly? It's something that Kirk, Christian and I have all discussed together and we still can't get to the bottom of it. Maybe he keeps a constant rental on a hotel room and keeps his stuff there. He's always got a cache of money, a cache of clothing, um, forging equipment because we know that he can forge paperwork. In my case, he went to the front desk, came back 17 minutes later, he had his picture on a on a forged identity. So we know that he can do that. So he's got to have equipment, photocopy equipment to do that. Where does he keep that stuff? Being being the uh, sort of romantically minded, I mean, romantic in the sort of adventurous sense, romantically minded person that he might be, that he, you know, he had a, I don't know, a left luggage locker at Victoria Station or something with a load of cash in it and a part, you know. I, I'd like to think he prepared himself like that, but. I've wondered if he keeps safe deposit boxes you know, here and there around the world. Is he that sophisticated that any major city where he finds himself, he's got a safe deposit box with money and, you know, things to get him going again when that day comes and he gets released from prison. I always have documents in various places in the world. I do not have accomplices, but I have them in security boxes that only I know the access and how to get to them. The other day I was watching a movie Born Identity, and I said, hey, this guy does the same thing I do. At the end of his meal, Juan Carlos gestures to the waiter, who promptly brings over the bill. No longer penniless, Juan settles the bill with a credit card plucked from his jacket pocket. And then he hands the waiter a Rolex watch as a tip for good service. I mean, who tips somebody a Rolex watch? And how good was the service? I've never been motivated by money. I don't care for it. Most of the money I have, I give it away. From what I've learned, Juan is indeed pretty generous with money that isn't his. And in a city he'd only just arrived in, he'd quickly managed to get his hands on expendable income and started to redistribute it. He robbed a guest in that hotel and dinner wasn't the only thing he bought. There was that Rolex watch, a ring, and he attempted to purchase a new suit before the card was declined. Juan thought he was in the clear. He purchased a flight to Boston and packed a small bag ready for the trip. But, back in London, officers were piecing together the breadcrumbs of his escape. And before he could board his plane, Juan Carlos would have his wings clipped once more. A tip-off alerted local Irish guardee to Juan Carlos's location in an internet cafe. 
He was engrossed in his emails, perhaps catching up on months of communications for the first time since being arrested in London. And he didn't notice the two officers walking in and approaching slowly from behind. Less than a week after his escape, Juan Carlos was back under arrest. But the authorities in Ireland didn't want to hand him back to London. They now had crimes of their own to charge Juan Carlos with. Over the next six months, Juan Carlos was kept on remand at a prison called Cloverhill. Christian made sure the Irish authorities knew all about his recent escape, and there was no way he'd be going to an open prison there. But all he and Kirk could do was wait for him to be punished in Ireland. Although Kirk isn't a cop who's keen on waiting. Did your investigation feel incomplete without understanding Juan Carlos? It, it did. Ideally, you just want a guy to confess. You know, that's the ideal. Yeah, I did it, and this is why. This is how I got the false ID. This is how I picked up on his name. So yeah, I, uh, that was paramount in my mind to get that interview. So Kirk scheduled a phone call, his opportunity to ask Juan the questions he'd wanted to ask for years. An administration guard came and told me that there was a person who was calling for two or three days and who wanted to talk to me. The first thing that came to mind is that he was a journalist, and I told him I wasn't going to talk. This gentleman kept insisting. And then apparently he said that he was from the Las Vegas police. What could the police want? They went and got him, they brought him to the phone. It was like magic, you know, to actually, actually have that guy to hear his voice on the other end of the line. He didn't greet me. The first thing he told me was that if I had ever been to Las Vegas. You know, you don't want to be coming across too accusatory because a person immediately would become defensive and just hang up, you know. You don't even have to get up and walk out of the room, just hang up. The pair stuck to small talk. Kirk keen to keep him chatting. Juan keen not to give too much away. I remember he was going to hang up on me. That's the main thing I remember is that he got irritated and he was going to hang up. And that was the very thing that I, like I said, I was nervous about. Just, he had nothing to gain and everything to lose by continuing to talk. So I, I remember that. I remember that he was, for lack of any better words, uh, happy to show off. I told him that it was natural that I could speak like an Englishman of the Queen or American English like him. And he said, how'd you do it? Then I started speaking to him in British English, and then I spoke to him in American English. You know, he, he loved his language skills, and he was happy to show off. Juan spoke to Kirk in German, and then in Italian, wowing the cop with his ability to sound authentic, with no hint of his Colombian roots. I could tell that he was fairly narcissistic. And so I tried to play to that by asking him questions where he could fan his own flame, so to say. So things like, well, can you speak English, you know, without an accent? Well, hell yeah, you want me to talk like a Texan? I can talk like a Texan all day long, you know, just, just like that, just that fast, just like I did, he did that. When he was ready to hang up, I said, espérese, espérese. Habla un momento más. Habla español, ¿verdad? Which means wait, wait just a second. Talk to me in Spanish, would you? 
In his native tongue, Juan relaxed a little, and the pair spoke a while longer. Crucially, Juan mentioned visiting the Four Seasons in Las Vegas. He stopped short of admitting any crimes there. Kirk would have to wait for any hope of a confession. And for now, he was at the back of a queue, behind Christian, patiently waiting to get his hands on Juan after the Irish were done with him. But as it was, they'd both be disappointed. Juan served just a few months in prison in Ireland for the robberies in Dublin, and then they sent him to Paris to serve a sentence there. France, well, they did what they always do, their own thing. And when Juan's sentence there came to an end, he was free to walk out of prison and rebuild his life. By now, it was 2006. Juan was still a fugitive from the UK and still a wanted man in the US. But being banned from a country hadn't stopped him before, and it wasn't going to stop him now. Juan grabbed another of his passports and headed to the bright lights of New York City. But it wasn't a robbery that Juan was planning. Throughout this podcast, I've tried to get under the skin of Juan's behaviour, to understand not just how he does what he does, but why. And when I heard about this next story in New York, it changed my understanding of the man. But I'll let him explain. Then on December the 31st, I went to New York. I went out and I arrived at the hotel. I remember turning off all the lights in the room, ordering champagne and sitting down to cry. I sat down to cry for the loneliness I had. I thought I had everything I wanted, but in the end, I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. I was depressed. This feeling of loneliness and saying, I have everything, and I have nothing. One of the things that fascinates me about Juan is the solitary nature of his life. Since he arrived in Miami in that wheel well of a plane, as far as I can tell, he's travelled mostly alone. There was that French boy, Pierre. But these acquaintances, these friends, they're rare, they're occasional. When Juan's life of crime takes him to a new city or a new continent, he always goes alone. And he's never in one place long enough to settle. And clearly, that makes him lonely. I wondered if that's because Juan can't make friends. Or does his job provide a barrier to him starting relationships? Well, no. Because I've learned that at some point in the mid to late 2000s, Juan fell in love. he did enter a meaningful relationship with a man called Alfredo. They even got matching tattoos together while on holiday in Amsterdam. Alfredo was inked with the phrase Little Bear and Juan Carlos, Shorty. It's clearly a significant moment in Juan's life, a significant relationship. He was sharing his time with someone else and he was happy. He later spoke about this relationship to a Colombian journalist called Andre Pachon. The most important person in my life is Alfredo. I've known him for about seven years. I met him in the United States. We were in a nightclub. I remember that I saw him, but he didn't see me. So it was a lot of fun. 
And then one day we were in the same place and he saw me. We started talking like that and little by little, well, things happened. He's from Mexico. His father has a farm there. In 2008, Juan was even planning to marry Alfredo. They discussed settling down, but it was on the condition of leaving his life of crime behind. It wouldn't be in the vows, but it was a compromise that Juan would have to make for a future with his new man. We're going to settle down. I will live with him in Mexico, work the land, live with the animals, or maybe get a job with his father. We're going to get married soon. I think being a criminal is over for me. But if in the future the relationship with Alfredo ends, well, then I have savings. But those are not enough. Hi, hello. Uh, do you, sorry, do you I went online to look for marriage records, even spoke to the Mexican authorities to see if I could uh, find Alfredo. I, I'm trying to find a marriage record. But there was nothing. But the next thing I found during a late night trawl of documents was a record of Juan Carlos being arrested. And the records told me that Juan Carlos was alone. It seems he hadn't committed to that relationship with Alfredo. Perhaps he couldn't give up the con after all. The events that led to his next arrest all unfold thousands of miles away from Alfredo in Canada. And I managed to track down the police officer named on the warrant that I found from the city of Toronto. My name is Julie McInnes. I was a pretty new officer at the time. Um, I believe I'd been on the road for about three years. So I was in uniform and I was detailed to answer radio calls. Julie has spent her whole career in the Canadian police force and she remembers her early days fondly. I appreciated every minute and it was very exciting and, you know, I was just brand new. So everything was, was exciting. She had no knowledge of Juan Carlos. I'm pretty sure nobody in Canada was aware of him. But the Colombian had made his way to Toronto and identified an upmarket hotel, which he thought would be perfect to rob. The Fairmont Royal York Hotel is, it is, you know, it would be the place to go if you were, um, or at least one of the choices if you were to come to Toronto and you were, I guess, a wealthy tourist. It's a beautiful building, it's historical. But Juan wasn't interested in the architecture. The only thing catching his eye was the expensive luggage belonging to the wealthy guests checking in. And later that day, Julie got a call. There had been a crime. I'm pretty sure at the time I was just excited to even go to a nice hotel. Yeah, I don't I don't think we had any any understanding of of what had actually happened. Not for the first time, Juan Carlos was already one step ahead. In fact, by the time Julie got the call, he was nowhere to be seen. I remember getting there and we were uh, met by, I believe, the security uh, and, and the complainant as well. Um, and they took us to the room. And I believe it was, I think it might have been their best suite. I've never been in a hotel with like multiple rooms, basically like a living space. The complainant uh, was there with his wife and his and his children, and they um, they had settled in. I think they came from Dubai, um, and then they uh, went out for like a daily um, outing to meet a friend. Uh, and when they came back, is when I think they realized things had been disturbed a bit. 
And then when they looked into it further, they realized uh, they couldn't open their security box. And then when uh, hotel staff came to uh, assist them, uh, they finally got it open and all of their money was gone. The mood was pretty somber. And I mean, the amount of money at that time, I'm pretty sure it was like over 30,000, like in cash. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of money to, to lose, I think even for just, you know, any any guest, even their wealthiest guests, just, it, you know, it's, it's just in their safety deposit box. It's supposed to be secure and, you know, and then it's all gone. Julie set to work scouring the hotel for any clues. Basically, everyone's a suspect at that point, right? We've heard all this before. This was a crime straight out of the Juan Carlos playbook, identical to the ones in London and Las Vegas. Only this time, it wasn't just money that Juan was after. There was something new. I think their cologne was even stolen and, you know, just things like that. Like his, he was looking for his toiletry bag, I think. Um, and that's what kind of alerted him to how things were kind of a little bit different. I think he even said that there was some refuse in the garbage, um, which seemed odd. Juan had once again broken in and left, leaving a trail of breadcrumbs which Julie was desperately trying to follow. I had never been involved in a more complex case like this, um, so I put a lot of effort into it. So we had to just gather all the information we could. It was a, it was a total caper, like it was it was a huge mystery. This time, CCTV came to the police's rescue. They had an image of their suspect, and when that was shared internationally. It soon matched with the records from Las Vegas and London. We learned, you know, that um, he was alleged to have um, done this to luxury hotels worldwide. He uses false passports, um, has different aliases, speaks several languages. You know, I, I think he's even posed as royalty. But we had no idea if he was even still in the city. We really had no leads. So I think we just pleaded to the public based on the image, um, to try to find him. Was Juan still in Toronto? A member of the public thought so. They called Julie to say that Juan was in the international airport, seemingly waiting for a flight. We did get a lead from uh, a citizen at the airport. And they were like, this is the guy, he's about to get on the same plane as me. The detective at the time um, allowed me and my partner to come with them. So this was like my first, you know, kind of big caper. So we actually went to the airport and I just, when we got there and we saw who they believed it was, I knew it wasn't him. I'm like, in my heart, I was like, I do not think that's the guy. Suffice it to say, uh, we ended up speaking with him and yeah, it was not, it was not Mr. Guzman Bentecourt. I got off the phone to Julie, wondering just how often Juan had managed to slip the net, how many times he'd been close to being captured. And then I saw two missed calls from Christian. We'd spent weeks trying to find any lead on where Juan Carlos might be. And Christian, well, Christian had a breakthrough. Christian, I've seen you missed calls. What, what, what can I do for you? <laughs> I've had I've had a bit of a bit of a tip off. I've had some info about Juan Carlos, which is oh my god, potentially quite interesting. Um, Go on, where is he? Is he in London? No, I've been told he's in prison in Austria. In Aust yeah. Austria, yeah, Austria. Yes, 
What the bloody hell is he doing in Austria? More specifically in Vienna. I don't know. I don't know what he's been nicked for. I don't know why he's in prison. Nothing. All I know is that he's, he's in custody in a prison in Austria, in Vienna. If this was true, we were finally on the trail of the elusive Juan Carlos. I rang the prosecutor's office, the police station, the Austrian government, and I learned nothing. Yeah, are you able to tell me which prison he's in? In Austria, there's a policy of keeping things under wraps. So even if you're a convict, the details of your crime and the reason for your arrest, there aren't public information. You can't just look them up. They wouldn't even confirm to me that Juan was a prisoner at all. All I could do was write a letter. I kept Christian's name out of it. I didn't want the name of a policeman to ruin any chances of a reply. So, I kept it simple. Dear Juan Carlos, I understand that you may be residing in a prison in Austria, and I'm keen to talk to you. My name is Daryl. And I sent that letter to every male prison in the city of Vienna. I didn't expect to hear back, if I'm honest. I didn't know if they'd passed the letter on, if the information was even correct. It felt like a long shot. So imagine my surprise when, about a month later, I get a letter with an Austrian postmark delivered through my letterbox. Dear Darrell, one must confess my surprise on how well informed you and Madame Sophie are regarding one's life on the former Habsburg Empire. Madame Sophie, she's my executive producer on this series. The Habsburg Empire? Well, I'd need Google to help with that one. And it turns out it's a historical name for the House of Austria, last used in 1780. Bizarre. My dear one, I must decline your request at this particular moment, but my dear, do not be distressed nor dismayed, as one will inform you of the appropriate moment, time and location for a casual conversation concerning your request. Please receive my most humble regards. Yours sincerely, Juan Carlos. My word, that is awesome. That is incredible. But I mean, uh, I would, I would, I would predict he would write a letter in that manner as well. That is fantastic. Even his writing is this flowing script. It's very ostentatious. It's almost exaggerated with the curves of some of the letters. His English, whilst it's not a one hundred percent correct, seems like it's been taken from I don't know. Victorian times or something, the, the, the manner in which he uses words and constructs sentences. It's very, um, I don't know, I suppose it's very Latin. Um, if I translated this letter into French, for example, it would probably read a lot better because it's, it's incredibly formal. It's very, very formal. And I don't know, it's almost like a it reminds me a bit of a of a letter between a, a World War One soldier and his wife, or something. It's I don't know. There's something very, very intriguing about it. We were both a little giddy, dissecting all of the words, trying to work out if there was a hidden meaning. What does it mean? Do not distress or dismay. I can't talk to you now, but I will soon. Was that what he was saying? I 100% guarantee you the mere fact that he's replied is completely indicative of the fact that he is very uh, um, drawn in by the fact that someone's paying attention to him. I guarantee he's he's very interested in in engaging. 
Um, if he wasn't, and remember, I tried to engage with him, you know, 15 odd years ago, whatever it was, in a, in a police station, and he was poker faced, you know, mouth closed, didn't say much, if anything at all. It's, it's phenomenal to see, it really is absolutely incredible. We wrote back, asking for a visit, trying to keep the conversation flowing. I asked about his time inside, his interests. I hoped he might be bored, if nothing else, and would enjoy the opportunity to practice his English by writing back. But no more letters came. I waited and waited, and there was nothing. So, a couple of months later, Christian and I took a flight out to Vienna. We were heading to the prison. We knew he was there, so we had to visit and find out if he'd talk to us. So where are we going, Christian? Uh, we are going to uh, what, what we hope is a prison in, uh, in Tulnebach, which is a town just outside uh, Vienna. So we're going to go to the, uh, the address that Juan Carlos has indicated on his letter um, and see if uh, we can find out if, um, if he's still there or what he was up to there. This feels like the closest we've been to him for, or you've been to him for quite some time. It is, yeah. This, this will be the, the, the most recent where our, where our paths have crossed, as it were. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be quite it's going to be quite strange going to a place where we either know or suspect he was or is. We'd been driving for about an hour when we suddenly pulled off the main road and started climbing a hill into what appeared to be a forest. And there, in the middle of the trees, surrounded by just a couple of fields and one sheet of wire fencing, stood a prison. Oh, here we are. Who Wow. It's like a castle on the top of a hill, albeit very prison-esque. There's bars on the windows and fences and wire and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't look like there's any, like, visitor's centre or anything. As we pulled up outside the gates, our somewhat confused taxi driver spotted a sign. He said it's, it looks like it's some sort of institution for ill people, like mental institution. Well, that's, is there anyone we could, is there, there was a little buzzer, wasn't there, on the door? What if there's somebody we could talk to? I don't really know what I was expecting, but this wasn't it. Christian went to investigate, his German being far better than mine. Right, let me try and buzz this buzzer and see, see what I can do, see what I can find out. Moment mal, moment. Sonderkrankenanstalt. Hello, können Sie Englisch sprechen, oder? The guard said he spoke no English, so we'd have to communicate in German through the intercom. Ich habe diesen Brief in England erhalten von Herr Juan Carlos Bettencourt. 
Dieser ist. Sie können Briefe halten, aber Sie wissen schon, das ist ein Gefängnis. Ein Gefängnis? Ah, okay. Okay. Können Sie bitte sagen, als dieser Herr Juan Carlos ist hier oder nicht? Oder nicht. Okay. Okay. Vielen Dank. Er war erhalten. Ah, okay. 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 Vielen Dank. He can't say it's a secret, but he left some months ago. He confirmed it's a prison and Juan Carlos is not here anymore. Wow. He left some months ago. He uh, knew the name? Yeah, he knew the name. That man has gone some months ago. But where had he gone? The road from the prison to the nearest train station was long and winding. I thought about whether he'd trodden the same path we were now walking. Where was he going? Why had he been housed in a prison hospital? Was he sick? I was worried we'd missed our chance, but little did I know that a new lead was just around the corner. He knew that the place was crawling with cops. It was crawling with Border Patrol agents. Couldn't find a way out of there easily. Our officer, he got on the cell phone, he got on his cell phone and he called across the street to the port of entry and he asked them, hey, did you, did you admit this guy? Did you inspect this guy? And they said, no. He said, we'll call Border Patrol, send him over here. Con Juan is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Daryl Brown. The words of Juan Carlos are played by Vidal Sancho. Music is supplied by KPM Production Music and Universal. The executive producer is Sophie Ellis. And our consultant, the man who kicked off this journey, is former detective Christian Plowman. What's the Story Sounds is the home of great storytelling. If you want to listen to more What's the Story content, you can visit our website at whatsthestorysounds.com. And you can subscribe to What's the Story Plus, where you'll find ad-free content, bonus episodes, and you'll get exclusive access to episodes and series before anyone else. You can find all the details on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>